back and back. Welcome to Decision Space, the only show to take place right here in the space between the turns in your favorite games. I'm Brendan Hansen. I'm Jake Friedman. And this is the podcast about decisions in games. And in today's episode, we untie the mechanical knot at the heart of one of the best two-player dueling games of all time, enlighten you to its secrets, and fight about which strategy is better, military or science, and we do so with an incredible companion and friend of the show to be announced, revealed, maybe in the title, and maybe <laughs> uh, in a few moments when we get to the second stage of the show. We're definitely putting it in the title. We got to get people to click on the episode first, but now we're hooking them. Man, we're great at this. Jamie's a face-up card in the in the drafting game of Seven Wonders Duel. <laughs> um, but for all you pre-planners out there, before we get into our topic uh, and a rules overview and the meat of the discussion on this game that Jake and I uh, and Jamie I know really enjoys, we want to let you all know that if you like playing along, next week we're going to be doing a What We Talk About episode, and then we'll be covering the classic Uwe Rosenberg game. Wait for it. Wait for it. Wait for it. Patchwork. Patchwork! Oh, yeah. nice. Cool. So, a classic polyomino game that has fed into, I think, a ton of other designs of Uwe Rosenberg and also really kicked off the polyomino trend. Uh, so, get your plays in of that either in paper or online at Board Game Arena. There's a nice implementation there that's a little too spooky for Jake and I's taste, maybe right now on the Halloween <laughs> version, but uh, I'm sure it's going to revert to normal patchwork soon. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Um, so, this week, if I'm not mistaken, we are covering Seven Wonders Duel, designed by Antoine Bauza and Decision Space favorite Bruno Catala. You know Catala from games that we've covered on this very show, like King Domino, Kanagawa, but also Cyclades, Five Tribes, Mr. Jack. Yeah, so Bruno Cathala stepping in, bumping up next to Seffenfeld for the designer most covered in the show, I'm pretty sure at this point. Um, I think it's really interesting that Bruno Cathala came in and co-designed Seven Wonders Duel with Antoine Bauza, of course, the original designer of Seven Wonders and the sole designer of that game. Antoine Bauza, of course, also known for games like Hanabi and Takedo. Um, to me, this seems like sort of a, an all-star duo of sort of game designers from Europe coming together to riff on one of the most popular games of the last decade. And it went really well. <laughs> this game at the time of our recording is the rank 16 game on Borging Geek of all time. It's the second highest two player game behind Twilight Imperium. Um, it was released in 2015 and there's a lot going on in this game. I think that makes it approachable to almost anyone, but with chunky, delicious and fuzzy enough decisions to keep even the most experienced capital G gamers intrigued, at least for their first 50 plays. And with the Seven Wonders series, now a trilogy, I think we can officially call Seven Wonders Duel the Empire Strikes Back of board games, where the second one is like the best. Oh my gosh, it's so brilliant. <laughs> I think you're right, Jake, but we'll, we'll have to see as we get into it. And I wonder if we've overplayed our hand on Seven Wonders. Will we ever come back to that game? If you'd like us to, let us know in the Discord. And I know there will be at least one person in that Discord letting us know that we must cover it right now ASAP, please. Why don't we run your amazing rules overview to give people a better idea of how to play. And then we'll get into our conversation about this game with none other than Stonemeyer Games' own Jamie Stegmeyer. 
Seven Wonders Duel is a two-player tableau-building drafting game with multiple paths to victory. Over the course of three ages, players collect resources, build their economy, strive for scientific breakthroughs, struggle against their opponent in a military tug of war, construct buildings in their civilization for victory points, and erect up to seven wonders between the two players. Wonders are powerful single-use effects drafted at the game's outset. At the start of each age, 20 cards are arranged in a display on the table with 40% of those cards being placed face down, hiding the information of what could be in a potential spot in that display until the card is revealed. In each age, the shape of the display of cards varies. For example, in age one, cards are arranged in a pyramid, starting with a row of six cards at the bottom, then five cards above that, and four, and so on. In age two, the shape is reversed, starting with just two cards, then a row of three, and so on. And in age three, the shape is something closer to a square. An age ends when all 20 of the cards in its shape have been drafted, and there's always a bit of uncertainty of what cards might be in a given age, as three cards from each age deck are mucked from the total pool during setup. Each turn, the active player chooses an accessible card from the display and adds it to their tableau, matching its resource cost with the cards they've already collected or paying the difference with gold, discarding a card for two gold, or two gold and the number of commercial cards they've already placed in their tableau, or using it to build a wonder if they meet its construction criteria. So those are the three things that you can do with a card when drafted. Cards drafted from this display will also slowly reveal cards above them, making those cards accessible for drafting and revealing them if they were one of the A cards initially placed face down. Importantly, Seven Wonders Duel can end in one of three ways. First, as players play and add military cards to their tableau, they'll advance a conflict marker down a shared track towards their opponent's side. If they ever build enough military to win this tug of war and push their piece, the shared piece, into the opponent's city at the end of the track, they win a military victory immediately and the game ends. Next, players might end the game by collecting six of the six different types of science cards in the game. Four of these types are available in ages one and two, and two others are stashed away in age three. If any player ever collects all six types, they win a science victory and the game ends immediately. Additionally, if players ever collect two of the same type of science token, they'll gain access to powerful, unique abilities called progress tokens that fundamentally reshape the rules of the game. Finally, if age three comes to a close naturally, then the player with the most victory points at the end of the game is declared the victor. Before we get into our conversation, the meat of our conversation about Seven Wonders Duel, we want to introduce a very special guest who is joining us back on the podcast, Jamie Stegmeyer. Thanks so much for being here. Yeah, I'm excited. I, I, I really appreciate this invitation. I love Seven Wonders Duel, and I love talking about games that I love. That I love. So yeah, I'm, I'm excited to talk about the mechanisms and do a deep dive with you guys. I should, having you back on the podcast, you're now one of two recurring guests that we've had, so very exciting stuff. Uh, but I do have to address one very important thing, correct some information. Uh, last time you were here, I did mention that you had never beaten me at disc golf. No longer the case, uh, and not only is that no longer the case, but you're currently the reigning champion between us. So, let's go catching up to Paul. I I had a good day, and Jake had a kind of a, a a slower day. I'm sure he will be back in that number two slot, maybe the number one slot at some point in the future. Yeah, but yeah, it was it was a fun day, and thank you for the correction. Yeah, I know that's what everyone's wondering about right now. So that's why they're tuning into the show. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
but it is it is cool um i think last time you were here it was episode six we had had 200 total downloads at that point i looked it up before you came on um Uh and this time it's episode 41 and over the past month we've had uh 2800 downloads so it's really growing and you know it's awesome to have you back on and hopefully some more people checking out the show this time around that's really cool congratulations Thank you. Well, without any further ado, we always start out our game discussion conversations doing a little uh, slogan or synopsis for the game and providing our rating. Jamie, you're welcome to uh, share a a little caption and a rating if you want to, but no pressure. Um, Let's go to Brendan first for your rating and slogan. Okay. Seven Wonders Duel is simple, plain, addictive fun. Its design is clever and leaves ample room for its players to also feel clever during the course of play. Its multiple tug-of-wars, passive tableau pressure, player powers, and randomized setup ensure every game feels unique. Despite being fun, fun, fun in the ancient world sun, Seven Wonders Duel, upon many, many, many repeat plays, starts to feel a bit like ice cream for dinner. Delicious, if not always as satisfying as you'd hoped it'd be. Eight out of ten wonders. All right. Very nice, Brendan. I'll jump in next. Um... So how can Seven Wonders Duel be the 16th best game of all time? Well, it's a highly interactive game with multiple paths to victory where you have to play your opponent as much as the game itself. Multi-use cards that scale in power over the course of the game ensure that players are never without something profitable to do on their turn and that every game has a sense of momentum and rising action. Suspense is literally layered throughout the game in the form of hidden face-down cards that when revealed at pivotal moments give me a genuine emotion ranging from fist-pumping to laughing in relief to head-in-hands agony. And to top it all off, this is a game that can be enjoyed by newcomers of the hobby and veterans of like alike. So yeah, 16th makes a lot of sense. Seven Wonders Duel hits a lot of boxes. You gonna give it a rating or let, let us Okay, so yeah. <laughs> my rating is a couple of nitpicks here and there make it a game I'm less likely to bring out than some of the others in my collection, but I always have fun playing it. I'm giving it a 7.5 out of 10, and we can talk about some of those nitpicks later. I don't have as wonderfully scripted uh, introduction <laughs> as you guys do, but I will say that Seven Wonders Duel includes three of my top five mechanisms mm. that I see in any games. I love engine building, I love I Cut You Choose, and I love Tug of War. I love all those mechanisms. And so combining them into one game, especially for a streamlined two-player experience, has brought me a lot of joy. And I actually am going to give it uh, nine, 9.5 out of 10. Ooh. All right, awesome. So we have a range, but all high scores, uh, good scores. And let's get into our discussion, which we like to always start um, by kind of talking about the decision space that the game creates. So let's jump right in and, and think a little bit about like how big or small the decision space is on your turn in the game. I think it's really fascinating the way that Seven Wonders Duel sort of has this uh growing and shrinking decision space over each round, ultimately really where, depending on how much the game pushes in any one direction, can wane to zero. And a lot of times we talk about waning decision spaces, right, where you're just making, you have no decisions left, or maybe you have such an obvious decision that it wins the game. A lot of times we talk about that, how the players have run out of decisions. Um, But I think what's interesting with Seven Wonders Duel and the way that 
the alternate wins can happen with the science victories or the military victory is that ends up being a positive uh, terminus of the game for that player where they a card flips and there's no decision. You just win the game because you've created the opportunity to win the game through selecting that military card that, you know, is going to push three shields and push you in or set collecting all of the the victory tokens. So I think that's really interesting how some games can end that way. Whereas other games, you might be making decisions all the way to the end and it just comes down to victory points. So it's a really dynamic decision space and no two games are really going to play out quite the same, even in their shape, I think. It's interesting that you tie that so closely to the, uh, the the different end game conditions. And I've definitely had that experience with the game. There are games that feel like normal games of Seven Wonders Duel, where the decision space is wide open for most of the game, where the tug of war doesn't really happen all that much on the mm-hmm. military track or the science, and you have your score at the end of the game. And that's that's still a satisfying experience. My most memorable experience of this game did come down to a, a card flip at, I think it was at the at the beginning of the third round, maybe. It wasn't all the way to the end of the game. Um, or it came down to that flip and that in itself, it didn't feel like luck. The, the, I think my opponent won that game and he had set himself up for that military victory. And it was, I was happy for him when it happened because it was so cool that, that he, that he, he was ready for that moment in the game. And so there wasn't really a decision space in that moment, but he had had, he had made many entry decisions leading up to that point. I think that's such a key distinction there too, Jamie. And one of the criticisms that I feel is levied against the game a lot, at least as we've been having discussions in our discord is, oh, the outcomes of this game can feel really random. But to to your point, there's so many decisions that go into putting yourself in the position for a card flip to matter that it's really about applying pressure on the board through your decisions to set yourself up for a potential victory or a potential loss. And the sacrifices that come with that, where you're sort of, I love that about this game, that the decisions that you're making are playing into your ability to perceive what could be happening after the outcome of that decision. And that's true in so many games that we play, but it's so palpable in Seven Wonders Duel because of how impactful some of the cards can be and those victory conditions, like you said. Yeah, I I agree with a lot of what y'all are saying. And I think that one thing that Seven Wonders Duel is so interesting for is it really distills this idea down um, that we experience in, in so many games we play, which is like, what is the board state right now? I think so much of the game comes down to trying to identify and determine what end game in Seven Wonders mm. Duel you're heading for and knowing before your opponent that, okay, this is going to be a traditional end that ends with whoever scores the most points at the end. So you can start collecting those uh, blue point scoring tile first. Uh, it is so important. So when I think about the size of the decision space, I think it has this really interesting dynamic where you might only be choosing between one or two cards on any given turn, or perhaps even just one card. Uh, but they're always multi-use and that you could always just discard them for coins. Um, so that like whatever you have you know, in your mind, analyze the, the board state to be at that moment is going to play a factor in that decision space, making it feel a lot more robust uh, than it would in, in a normal drafting game where you're just picking between one or two cards. And that's a decision that's happening at every turn in the game in some ways too, Jake. The sort of trying to figure out what the potential victory condition might be. You, the, from age one, from when the wonders come out and you do the wonder draft, you sort of say, okay, what could a potential strategy be? Then you see the progress tokens. And if strategy, the strategy token is there that makes military more effective, you sort of say, okay, military could be very viable. If law is there, the same one for science, 
even more so. And the shape of the game is really changing. Then you get the first age flop. What cards are face up? That's informing your decisions. And I feel like that's always happening in the back of your mind. You have that first order decision of what card do I want in this situation? But you're always doing that arithmetic of how does that factor into the shape of the game overall, which keeps the game really exciting. There's You're always evaluating it on two levels. And I like that you're able to do all those things that you guys are describing because you can always see everything that the opponent has in their tableau. I don't think yeah. there's any hidden information at all, um, at least not with the expansions I've played yeah. in Seven Wonders, other than the shared hidden information on the table of the cards that you haven't flipped over yet. So you can always, you're always very aware of your own status in the game and your opponent's status and what they might be going after. Definitely. That actually brings up another point about the decision space, which is what we like to talk about, sort of like the clarity, right? How clear uh, and calculable your choices are. And one of the interesting things about this game is it's one I own in person. Um, So I played on the table, but in preparing for this episode, we also played it a lot online. Um, And it's really interesting in the way that like, it, it does feel like the decision space changes a little bit when you're presented with just uh, everybody's points is just on the screen in front of you. So you can see exactly who's winning the points race. Um, and that some, uh, one of our, the people in our discord who Jan from wonderful plays YouTube channel, who's, who's played this game a lot talks about how the military and science victories are actually a lot more common when playing online because people are tend when they see that they're losing a point rate tend to pivot harder and earlier in the game and just go all in on those strategies where at the table, you know, even if you're playing seriously, you might not be okay. Calculating and recalculating exactly how many points everybody has on every turn of the game. So I think that's like an interesting distinction you see here in the digital versus tabletop play. That's really I think also to your point, Jake, with the clarity of the decision space, one thing that's so interesting about the cards, which obviously we have to talk about everything you can do with a card on your turn at some point, but is the dynamic costing of the cards, both in terms of the resource cost being dynamic, right? How many versions of a resource your opponent has is going to affect how expensive a card might be for you and how many economic trading cards could affect that as well, but also the dynamic cost of what is behind it, what is the opportunity cost of a card, how much is if I could choose to take this card on the right, that's going to reveal a stone so I could make that decision, or I could take a card that's going to reveal two cards uh, that are face down and I don't know what's there. Is revealing those two cards on average going to lead to better choices or worse choices for my opponent than that stone that I could give them? And those lead to really interesting fuzzy decisions where you don't necessarily know what are in the face down card pool because three cards are always mucked from each age. So you can't ever calculate it. It's not puzzleable, but it is just enough information that you can make interesting informed decisions on those what feel like coin flips sometimes uh, that lead to interesting risk taking. That's one of my favorite moments in the game when, when yeah. you're trying to decide between something certain that is like okay for you or something that is completely uncertain, uh, but uh, it could be great for you, but could also be great for your opponent. I, I, I love that tension in the game. Definitely. And that just keys on attention. I think it runs throughout where so many turns in this game. I just like, I don't want to pick up any of these cards because Uh Brendan has put crafted a board state to put me in this situation where 
no matter what I'm doing, it's going to reveal something that's like better for him to do on his turn than what I'm doing right now. Uh, so, you know, how much you can craft the game state into this position that you want that favors you and whatever you're trying to achieve over your opponent. I think that's like one of the most fun aspects of the decision space. And, and again, it's something that's just layered on top of all the decisions that you're making. And that stems from the rule in the game that uh, and there might be an expansion exception with one of the expansions, but the rule that you must always take a card. I think there may be, you can correct me if there's one of the expansions that does that. I've only played the, th- the second expansion once, but the fact that you are always uh, impacting that tableau, you can't avoid it. You can't get out of it. You have to do it. You have to move the game forward and potentially give your opponent something good. Right. Absolutely. I mean, and, and I've only played the base game, um, sure. but the only kind of way around it is the wonder cards, which sometimes let you take a double turn and That's you know, right. just picking those moments where you're going to be able to use that to like, okay, I, I have this one chance to like get out of this horrible situation that I put myself in. Like, do I burn it now or do I try and wait for a later moment? Is, I think yeah. that's that's really fun too. Maybe we should, this would be a good moment to talk about the design of those because I feel like they're so intentionally the de- the decision to include double turns is very important, and then the amount that they are in the game is also so important because there was be the potential for these double turns come off of the wonders. So if you haven't played the game at the start of the game, you're going to draft uh, four wonders, taking turns with the opponent, and some percentage of them, like maybe. A little over a third, but less than half of them allow you to take another action if you construct that wonder on your turn. Um, this is important because it allows you to steal tempo. And I feel like these are really pushed. Um, and there's an opportunity to maybe not include as many of them. And when I first played the game, the first thought I had was, wow, these are broken. These are so incredibly powerful. They almost become the game. But then the game of chicken around, when do I use this? They're so incredibly potentially powerful in age three to solidify a military victory or a science victory, right? That inevitability of being able to take a double turn can just put so much pressure on the board um, that you kind of want to save them for H3. But if you save them for H3, then you're giving up the advantage of building out your board and some of the great benefits that come from those cards. Like the Temple of Artemis gives you 12 coins early. Use that in round one. That's a potentially a huge advantage that you can build if you can use that to build out your economy. And I think that tension, that tug of war slash game of chicken is also another important one in Seven Wonders Duel. It's not just the military tug of war. It's, it's the wonders tug of war. It's the science tug of war. It's the victory points tug of war. There's so many tension points in this game fighting for your attention and to me that's what makes this game so magic is it's not it, you can never know which rope to pull on until you already gave up the game and you have to pull on <laughs> the military rope and then your opponent has you right where they want you one little thing that before i forget that's tied to that to a certain extent is with, i like that with the military track that uh that you are pushing you might push for military victory but even if you don't get it Mm. you are still earning something along the way and still giving yourself i think potentially some end game points i'll have to check the track yeah you do give yourself some end game points uh so i like that it's not a total waste of time if you do go after that Uh, same with science it's not a total it's definitely not a waste of time with science if you pursue it um and don't achieve that end game victory you're still getting something along the way yeah and a lot of people say with science you know it's more about the scientific process and the peer-reviewed articles that come out of that (laughs) (laughs) well those peer-reviewed articles are pretty incredible in seven wonders duel actually uh 
Some of the progress tokens, I was shocked how much they really changed the decision space of the game even. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, and one thing that's really fun about the science, I think in particular, is because you can see, I think it's six science progress tokens at the beginning of the game. Uh, and you get to see all the wonders that are available during the draft and what you get. Those are things that people who really like strategy in games and like thinking ahead and play like you can really chart a path through the game uh and it feels really good and strategic when it comes together for example i had a game recently against brendan where first i got a science tile that let me uh turned all of my wonders into the repeat wonders where i could take a double turn so like i first got that and then that set up a play where i could get use activate a wonder that would let me draw one of the hidden science uh progress tokens which i knew i'd be able to get the one that counts as the extra science symbol and then turn that into a double turn where i could go from four to six science to like seal the end all in one turn and like all of that was out there on the table from the first turn of the game you know and i'm like actively trying to craft that game state you know in, in a game that on its face is so tactical, I think it's really cool that that information present at the beginning allows people who are inclined to, to have that like more strategic experience. Yeah, I like that balance quite a bit. There's, there is there is quite a bit of open information through those those tiles. Um, and even for the setup for each round, you can see some of those cards. You just can't see all the cards. So you can play, plan ahead a little bit. But right. yeah, it does, I haven't ever thought about the nice balance it strikes between long-term strategy and short-term tactics. Yeah, and the, and the same if you, you know, in the wonder draft at the beginning, right? If, if three of your uh, wonders that you pick have a military shield or more on them, right? That's also kind of really signposting you like, okay, these, all the military cards I get over the course of the game are a little bit more valuable to me than my opponent because I have this like inevitability that like if I need to get two shields at any point in the game, I essentially can. Um, so yeah, I think to me, that's like one of the most fun things about the game is at, at the very start, like looking at what I've have in front of me and sort of seeing like, okay, you know, what does this mean about my game state versus my opponent that gives me information again, all going back to the idea that like, really, this is a game about identifying what the end game is going to be first. Um, that, at least that's how I see it. Mm -hmm. I love, too, the double-sided nature of that coin, where, yes, I'm looking at what I have, but I'm also just looking at what you have. And because of the way that the resource costs... So every time you get a, a good card, you're essentially increasing the cost of buying that good with gold to your opponent. Uh, so to me, that just makes the game so much more interesting, because there you have another economic tug-of-war where, yeah, I care about what my wonders cost, but depending on what wonders you have and how beneficial they might be early on, I might want to just draft a resource that makes it more difficult for you to build your wonders than I want to build mine. If mine are better late game, I'll just slow you down a little bit early. I'm not going to let you build the Great Lighthouse or let you get your Temple of Artemis early. Um, and I'm going to play defense until I can build a board and then I'll start snapping up all the cards in H3. And I think that's really interesting that I am so much playing my board, but because of the zero-sum nature and the interconnectedness of the systems, I'm playing your board too. Right. I'm curious what you think there then about the little dose of negative player interaction with the game. Because the game to me has so many interesting forms of interaction like that. Many reasons to pay attention to the other player and ways that you're affecting the other player by the cards you take, by the resources you take, like you just described. 
Um, when you take the double turns, the tug of war, there's mm. so many like non, non-direct but impactful forms of player interaction. But then there's, and this is probably the only thing that keeps it from being a 10 for me. There are a few mm. th- times in the game where you can, like there's uh, the, the Appian way, you can, you can steal some coin, or not steal, but you can uh, uh, have it, make your opponent lose some coins. And that, I feel, for some reason, even in a dueling game, I feel a little bad when I do that in Seven Wonders mm. Duel. And I'm not entirely sure why, because there's so many other forms of interaction where I'm hurting my opponent, essentially. How do you guys feel about that, that little dose of negative player interaction in the game? I think it's really interesting case study because, you know, arguably directly loot, it, it feels different. Like when you experience it, it feels different to say, okay, I play this card, you lose three. But earlier in the game, you know, the turn before that, your opponent could have trashed a, a card that, you know, could have given you six coins, right? Just from the display. And that's like, you know, functionally maybe even a bigger loss to you. It's like the loss of six, but because it's like indirect, right? And you didn't already have those, it's like lost opportunity instead of like lost something you've already gained. It yeah. really does feel fundamentally different. Um, I don't know. What do you think, Brendan? I don't, I don't think personally it, it bothered me as much just because, you know, this game is so steeped in that interaction that you can't really get away from it even with not counting the direct interaction. The two other cards that I, or wonders that I feel like play into this, Jamie, are the Mm -hmm. Statue of Zeus, which I believe lets you destroy a brown resource card of your opponents. You get to pick any one of them. Mm -hmm. And then there's another one that I don't remember its name, uh, but does the same for the specialty goods, the the silver cards. Um, And I think those three are the most direct ways. And then the military can make your opponents lose coin too, but that feels more incidental. Um, And I... I think it's interesting because I it the presence of them sort of creates this passive pressure where if I can afford those wonders, then you know that if you took a specialty good, I might destroy it, which until I do that disincentivizes you from taking it because, right. oh, what's the point of me spending a turn taking a glass if next turn? Jamie's just going to destroy my glass. That feels like a, a bad moment. Um, so I think the mind games that it creates is interesting, but it is a sort of it dramatically changes the feel of the decision space. Why do you feel like you it you feel like it you bounced off of it somewhat, Jamie, in a way that it brings the game down slightly for you? Do you feel it's against the ethos of what the design is trying to do otherwise? No, it seems, that's the odd thing about it. It seems very consistent with the rest of the design. And it again, yeah. again, it is it's a dueling game. I we I we have both opted into this game where we are going to be impacting each other throughout the game. I think um and you're right, you can play around it a little bit. Uh but I, I just know from my experience, I, 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 I feel bad whenever I do that. And I think it's mm. often because the opponent has fairly recently obtained those coins or obtained that brown card or the green card. Even in the instance you just described, if they are stalling to not to gain that card, if they eventually do, that would be the time that I would, I would then trigger that, that wonder. And so I tend to like save those wonders until last. So I'll activate my other ones. I'll, I'll like play around it, essentially. I could, you know, it's only three cards I just looked through here. So I probably could just remove them from the game if it's really hurting my experience all that much. But it was just, it was notable to me in a dueling game that for some reason I felt bad hurting my opponent. Um, yeah. Yeah. I wonder if it's also has something to do with like the fact that this is a game that I'll often use as like an introduction to the mm-hmm. hobby to somebody. Uh, yeah. And in and, and those kind of scenarios, right, you don't want to be like, all right, let's play this fun game especially if they're uncomfortable or you know out of their depth in any way and now all of a sudden it's like okay good good play except for like that's destroyed <laughs> <laughs> and now yeah. i'm taking your coins 
To that metaphor, I feel like Jake, in some ways, maybe the answer is, is that so much of Seven Wonders Duel feels like this dance around one another. And these are instances of tripping your opponent while they're trying to do their dance moves, right? Yeah. Where exactly. you're like, we sh- I should have just won the dance off, but I'm just going to know But that said, okay. with with an experienced opponent, I, I think Brendan can probably attest to, those are cards I really liked and strategies I really <laughs> liked in playing against him. Uh-huh. I really enjoy them because there's a, a lot of the game of Seven Wonders Duel is exerting pressure without taking actions, right? Forcing your opponents to respond to things that you haven't yet done that's how you find an edge in the game, where it's putting them in a position where if they don't take the military card, they might lose given a wrong card flip. Or if they don't hate draft the science that they don't really care about, they're going to be in a bad spot. And I like that the Wonders sort of play into that same headspace of, well, just by having this and being able to afford it, your your perspective on the game shifts. But beyond that, yeah. So we, we've talked a little bit about the military cards, the science cards, but... I, I think maybe we should touch on the other types too. So there's also yellow cards, which I think are really interesting in, in this like economic game that's happening where, you know, those are really, while the other cards in the game, you know, collecting science tiles or going for military is giving you this passive sort of pressure on your opponent, like where they have to keep watching out for that. The yellow tiles are interesting because they give you an actual passive benefit, improving your economy throughout the whole game by increasing the, you know, discard a card for coins action. Um, so I just think that is, I think that's a really interesting choice too. Um, how, how do you feel about those cards, Brendan? Oh, I think the design of the yellow cards is absolutely brilliant because it creates, especially early on with the way the resources can come out, you could really end up stuck where you'll never afford something. And the fact that these reset the trading rules um, creates cards of such disparate value on the board that it leads to those really impactful moments, right? If if I'm playing against Jamie and he's taken the three of the, two of the stone that have already come out and I'm working on the Great Pyramids and I need three stone, if, if I can at least get that one stone trading card that resets the trading rules such that they always cost one, I feel like I'm still in the game. Um, So it it allows potential for comebacks against that really aggressive brown strategy. And it also creates exciting moments and interesting decisions around that, where if that comes up for Jamie, he doesn't really care. He already has the stone, but denying me that card potentially becomes even more interesting, which then maybe that's an easy choice. Do I just discard it then for for coins? Do I build it? I, I don't know. I think these are great. What do you think, Jamie? Well, they, this, these always stand out to me because it, it um, compared to the original Seven Wonders, where it's just a set, uh, you gain three dollars when you gain when you discard a card. I, I, I someday I'll maybe have to ask ask the designers about that to see if maybe they thought of it afterwards, mm. or they thought it would be easier to remember in a two player game than a up to seven player game because it's so clever. It's it's it. You have this feeling of progression. I love progression in games in general, and so you have this feeling of progression as you get more and more of the, uh, the economic cards. So I really like it, and I'm curious why. And so is. Also, though, because it's different than the core game, it's the one thing that I always have to look up in the rulebook to remember because it is distinctly different. Yeah, I I do agree. I think the only place where the rules get a little tough, especially for this being a game for that really caters to newer players, is in like the trading rules Mm -hmm. uh, and and how there's like a shifting cost for resources that could be impacted by these commerce cards or or potentially not. Um, But yeah, I think the amazing about this game i think is just the the way that the economy cards are curated so that it's not too tight right i don't i don't feel like 
it feels kind of rare that I'll play this game and I feel like I can't do anything because of the economic cards, both the resource producing ones, the browns and grays, uh, and the commerce ones all went to my opponent. It seems like one way or another, you know, unless you're really asleep at the wheel, you're going to be able to get your economy going some way, but it still feels tight um, to where, you know, if, if, if it feels like if there were just one or two more of these commerce cards or one or two more of the resource producing ones, uh, it, it might not have that same kind of economic tension. So I think that the designer really hit the nail on the head for that. Yeah. And how fun is it to your point too, to both Jake, we've talked about this separately and Jamie to your point, when you get to age three and you get to discard and all of a sudden you're getting six gold maybe or seven gold even potentially for a card um, yeah. that can really just impact the decision space overall too given that coins can be victory points at the end of the game. Um, and there's a guild card, a purple card that could be an H3 that gives you extra points for gold. So I think this is just yet another way that there are even more potential paths to victory outside of those three core strategies. This is another sort of hybrid way that the designers were really cleverly able to add a, a victory condition of, I'm going to get a lot of coins. Um, it plays into some of the progress tokens too, where you might get coins for building buildings that you're uh, using a symbol that already exists in your civilization or the economy card where instead of when your opponent builds a building where they have to pay gold, it comes to you instead of the bank where all of a sudden you can sort of stack these things and maybe I'm just trying to amass coins for a victory. Let's, if it's all right with y'all, move on to kind of one more big topic here, which is how do you feel that we're on the spectrum between random chance and you know zero chance pure skill game do you put this i would guess that a skilled player in this game would win uh much more often than than an unskilled player who is re- relying on on happenstance and a little bit of luck uh, i don't know i don't know what exact percentage i threw out there right. but that would be my guess um but but i also do love that any game I've played of this, even against much more skilled opponents, I've always felt like I was in it. You guys have mentioned this a few times in what you've said today. I've, I felt like I was engaged in it, but at the very least, and had the potential to win at one of the conditions at some point in the game. So I think that is a nice achievement that, that I get to feel like I'm in it, even if a skilled player is probably going to win the game. I feel like that's part of uh, really important to explaining the popularity of this game too, Jamie, especially as a dueling game. Yeah. Um, you That has to exist. If this is your favorite game and you want to bring it to my house and we've never played it before it's a tougher sell if you're going to win 99.9% of the games to get me to want to play it against you because then I just feel like you're slugging against me but if I know I'm teaching this game in good faith you have a even a 10% chance of winning that's very exciting on your first win I think I completely agree I think the this game feels more random than it is I think it's an incredibly high agency game with how many decisions there are Um, And the potential for decisions to really vary in how much they impact you matters. I think among disparately skilled opponents, I feel like the better player wins 90% of the time. And maybe among equally or closer skilled opponents, it goes to something more like 60 or 65% of the time the better player wins. But that's, in my mind, that's still a game I'm very excited to play, even competitively, and really enjoy. um, Because it keeps the moments very excited. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I, I feel similarly, um, but I just, I guess where I come on, down differently, and I think maybe this is my main issue that, that like keeps this game from being something that I'm always, always wanting to bring out and play, is that it feels like once 
a lot of times, once you, both players are on the same page about where the game is going to end, whether it's going to come down to points or whether it's going to come down to military or whether it's going to come down to science. But, but when, it, when you've got close skill, uh, so not talking about like an expert versus a new player, it's going to come down, it feels to me like it comes down quite a bit to the random layout of cards in that last phase. You know, if it's, there's, there's these uh, purple cards we haven't mentioned, which are like these end game scoring cards that it feels to me when the game is getting to the traditional end of point scoring, like whoever has the opportunity to collect more of those purple cards is going to just eke it out in terms of points that that's typically been my experience and of course you know you can as we talked about there's ways to set yourself up going to that last phase whether through the repeated wonders or whatnot um but it still feels like pretty much decided once that once you get to that point and the same with military or science if you're going to that last phase like i need two shields and then you see the layout of the cards it could be well that's anticlimactic it's already over because my opponent is just going to be able to get three shields right off the bat and like reset this um and then the exact same with science so i don't know what i'm trying to say here but it i I feel like the very end you know i have such a fun journey through the game powers of progressing and at the very end it just often feels a little bit underwhelming and i think where i'm coming from that is it feels like only at the end chance starts to come in in a big way i feel okay i'm gonna rip out what you're saying i'm most frustrated when i feel like that when i lose via randomness in age three like you're describing it's generally an earned loss where i didn't observe correctly where the goalposts were based on the game states the state that exists so if the law token is out i know that a science victory is so much more likely at five symbols out of six so i have to shift my whole strategy and same with military right if i'm letting you get within three I've already conceded a potential loss. And for me, the randomness that I dislike more in the game is not the age three randomness that I've played into, but the potential for age one randomness where I'm consistently revealed these one shield military cards that I'm having to trade for two gold because I just didn't get uh, any of the yellow cards that make them more valuable. And you're snapping up all the the silver cards the specialty goods and all the all the other meaty good stuff that's got your engine flying and i've been forced down this path that is putting me a little bit behind but it doesn't feel like you're losing it because of the potential comeback there's so many comeback potentials like we've discussed so for me the age three stuff i earned it the age one stuff why are you beating me up game I have a small observation. I, I can't counter the the age one. I think that's totally true. For age three, one other small thing that I think is really just a clever design decision is the um, the decision to be the first player or the second player mm. is on the player with, I believe, less military strength mm-hmm. at the time. And I think that's a really good design choice that they made. So that if you are in that position where you have weaker military and it would otherwise feel like a, a card flip or where it comes down to luck with the layout you have at least a little bit of choice there to take that away from the opponent to go first or to go second and make them reveal something for you so just a little subtle thing that i thought was it doesn't completely counteract what you said jake at all no, but, no. Uh, but i like that little choice there yeah i think it's actually really smart to go with military too because as you mentioned when you're going the military strategy you're getting incremental points and slowing your opponent down along the way where science there is the potential to get value out of it if you're getting two of the same science tags but having just four different science tags alone aside from the passive pressure it puts on your opponent isn't actually doing 
anything for you. So I think it makes more sense to go with the person trailing in that category than the other one. And for all my criticism of how this game sometimes feels a tiny bit anticlimactic at the very end, it also, I think, is something that makes it feel exciting, especially even if, if the game is lopsided, right? If somebody has one going away on points, the other player is very likely going to be able to look at the end game situation and say, okay, I lost by 30 points, but I only needed two more military and I could have won, or I only needed two more science. So it kind of has this, maybe it's an illusion or or maybe not of no matter what the game is going to end close, even if somebody had complete control. The decision to make the military also that when you're losing it, you get to go first is very interesting because then you inject a, a game of chicken at the start of the military struggle as well, where neither player really wants to be the first one to put military down unless they're going to be pursuing it a little harder. If you just take one military in age one, then you've just given away the start of the next round to your opponent, which that's a, it can really matter given how that can start, especially with the way the pyramid is shaped in age two. Um, where there's just two cards at the start. But even that is so clever in my mind too. Uh, Maybe buffing the military strategy in age one a little bit just by, okay, you have a choice, but even if you're going first, it's a choice between two cards, not a choice between six cards like in age one. The design of the different structures, I think is also very smart and an essential glue for what keeps the decisions interesting and the tension really tight. I hadn't even thought about that until right now, just how how much this game would not work if the age three pyramid of cards was set up as the age one and you had six options at the very beginning of age three because you know you're so so likely to get that one science or the one military you'd need right at the beginning Uh, but how, how you only have two at age two and age three is i think a super smart choice that kind of you know it's just one of those like game design or development things that that can almost be like hidden from the player, but it's really improving the experience of play. I think it also helps the decisions stay fast at the end of the game. As you get more information, the decision space overall, because of the shape of the different structures, is generally like more likely to be a choice between two cards or three cards, rather than even more at the start. So it's really smart that early on, when you have less information that you're inputting into this decision system of drafting a card, you're you have more just choices on the board. And later in the game where you have even more information, you have fewer decisions, but they're likely to be more impactful. It's just, oh, so good. <laughs> and also having all the six cards available at the beginning adds to that strategic element that I was talking about being present at the beginning of the game because you know, you're picking that strategy and then you're likely going to be able to take something that you're, you're, you feel is advancing you towards whatever strategy it is you're, you're going for at the beginning of the game. Um, yeah, that's really cool too. Can so, we take one moment, Jake, to talk about how we each like to play the game? I'd love to hear sort of what Jamie's, what your favorite path is through this game. Like your your wonders that you enjoy or the victory condition you most like to go for or maybe a progress token you love. Sure, yeah. I, I, so I there's so few games that I play that have instant win conditions that I always go after one of them. It, it isn't always a military science, but it just... I when I sit down to play this game, I immediately get excited about one of those instant conditions. Um, both because I think it's just well designed for many of the reasons we've discussed, but I think also just because it's a rarity. There's so yeah. few games in my collection that have that, and, and so few that do it well that I just get excited to try it to push those limits, even if I get completely screwed over with the points later on in the game. 
Yeah, it's funny that you say that because me and Brendan kind of fell into this pattern when we were playing this game against each other where he would go for science every time and I would go for military <laughs> like every time. I don't know exactly why it happened. It must have just been like the way we understood the game. Like I was perceiving just slightly more value in the military cards and Brendan was in science. And even doing that every time, you know, it felt like it was still, you know, with nobody going for points, it still created like a really interesting and textured game state. Uh, that, that was a lot of fun. I think it comes down to Jake, our constant discussion of you want to extract value with every action. And I'm willing to go for the Johnny plays where if the science comes together, it feels amazing. Or if I can just get those really cool progress tokens, the game is going to be even more fun. And I, I do think the progress tokens are strong enough that it really encourages you down the science path. Um, but if you go too hard early science, you become very exploitable because you've invested a lot into your science and your opponent only has to draft one or two cards away from you to really throw a wrench into everything you have. Um, yeah, I think my favorite token probably is the the economy card, though, just because of how much it changes the game. That's the progress token that when uh, you, your opponent builds a building, if they pay gold, they give it to you instead. I just love the sort of tax that that creates and how that shifts the decision space. Yeah, I'll, I have two favorite wonders, and they are the one that lets you get one of three uh, progress tiles that weren't uh, the available. Great library. The, the great library at the beginning of the game. And the other one I also don't know the name of um, is the one that lets you draw one of the discarded cards. Uh, that's the mausoleum of Holocarnassus. <laughs> <laughs> well done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, if I can get, if I can have either of those at the very beginning of the game, I just feel like it opens up your strategy so much more. Like just the knowledge that one feels really sneaky it's like okay i can plan for a path that my opponent might not see because it's not based on currently visible information but the the one with the discarded cards it just feels so powerful uh you know i just feel much more comfortable every time i discard a card like okay i can come back for you later it's fine (laughs) one other little thing that i really do love to do in this game that didn't really fully occur to me until we're talking about it were the uh the little icons that you build stuff for free Mm. Which I it's in seven wonders as well, but they they use words in that one, and and I like the the use of symbology in in this version of the game. And I just the thing that I noticed right now because uh, a I love getting stuff for free in games if I if I have earned it, um, but b I, I hadn't noticed that those icons don't appear as many uh, as often or maybe not even at all on the resource cards, but they do appear on cards that would like the blue cards that would normally only benefit you at the end of the game. So there is a sense of progression to these cards. Uh, a sense of engine building, really, uh, even if they wouldn't otherwise benefit you until later in the game. So that, that I think, is a lot of fun. I, yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up because, again, to Brendan's point of being somebody who always wants to get value, right, advance Ooh, my game yeah. state, like picking up something that's essentially just, this is three points but doesn't help you at all feels bad and almost just like kind of a wasted turn. But the simple fact of having a symbol on it, it's like yeah. that just triggers your brain that's like, no, this is like not just points. It's also an investment. It's going to potentially pay off down the line. Um, that mechanic's so cleverly yeah. designed too, because it's an outlet for if your opponent does get all the brown cards and all the gold cards and you don't have an economy, you could still have a potential path through the game if you pivot to blue and really yeah. invest in a way that it's just another way for the game to push in a direction without pushing you out of the game entirely that I really enjoy. And in, 
key to this also is the fact that you can always hate draft a card and, and discard it for gold. Even if you're not benefiting hugely, you can always interact with what your opponent has, even if you can't afford it, which I think is another really important aspect of ne neither player suffering through maybe two ages if they got boxed out of the game entirely. That, that makes the victory conditions really work. Well, I, I want to be respectful of your time, Jamie, and thanks so much for joining us in this conversation. But with that in mind, let's do, if anybody has just kind of a final thought, uh, wrap up for this conversation, let's go to that now. Uh, Brendan, do you want to go first with final thoughts? Take key oh. takeaways from this conversation? Gosh, I, I think that this is a really interesting study in multiple victory conditions and what they can do in terms of tension for a game. Like Jamie said, it's so rare to see a game that has multiple paths to victory, some of which are instantaneous. And it's a bummer that there aren't more. And I understand why there aren't more because it's so difficult to design them effectively. And I think this game's a masterclass in why they work well. But when done correctly, it can make for such an exciting game where everyone, you're, you're always so engaged. Um, because you, if you always have the potential to make that comeback, you're in it and you're right there. Um, yeah, I'll go next and give you the last word, Jamie. Um, I think having this conversation has really kind of opened my eyes up to some of the really smart design choices uh, that go into the game that just make it so satisfying to play. I actually feel like just having this talk makes me want to like raise up my score just a little bit uh, because I'm you know just being able to like put a word to why things are working and having a little bit better understanding is something that always excites me about the game. Well, I do feel like perhaps like the general framework of the multiple win conditions works so well and is exciting. Like there is an inherent con to that, which means that, you know, the game is less about building up a civilization and more about figuring out which victory mm. condition is going to happen so i think that's just something that's going to be an inevitable experience of, of a game that's designed that way and i think at the end of the day maybe that is sort of like what leads me to, to not always want to bring it out because i just find that type of game gameplay while it's fun uh is ultimately like leaves me less satisfied than perhaps like another game where figuring out the board state and what's going on is a part of it, but then there's also something else that that is leading to instead of it being the game in and of itself. Okay. I'm going to land the plane on that point. And go over <laughs> to you. <Jamie. laughs> well, I, one thing that we, that I haven't said in this conversation is that I, uh, there are a lot of dueling games that I've played over the years, uh, like magic, the gathering Keyforge, Jake, one of, one of the games you've talked a lot about um, that, that are about, actively hurting your opponent, mm. actively bringing down their life to zero, uh, killing their creatures, whatever they have on their tableau. Like that, I think for perhaps because of magic became like the default for dueling card games for a long time. And so I'm so thankful. It, while I love those games, that is not a knock on those games at all. But while I love those games, I'm so grateful for Seven Wonders uh, to exist and that it's, uh, even though there are all these interesting player interactions and reasons to pay attention to, to your opponent in the game, that in the end, it's a lot about what you have built. You have built something. You've built up to something. And I, I love that there is a dueling, a great dueling game that, that has that as a feature in the game instead of just uh, bringing your opponent down, instead of hurting your opponent. That's awesome. All right. Uh, well, let's end the conversation there. Jamie, thanks so much for joining us. Is there anything you'd want to plug at all to our audience? Any cool Stonemeyer stuff going on? 
Well, we are talking about a civilization game right now, so I will plug uh, Tapestry Arts and Architecture, the new expansion that we've announced for our civilization game uh, that I'm revealing the information about right now, and it'll be on pre-order in early December. Awesome. Sounds good. Uh, surely uh, there's, a, there's a, a good portion of people listening to this who will be very excited about checking that out. I, for one, need to check out the base game of Tapestry probably first, and then uh, I'll, I'll be able to dive into some of the expansion content. I want to make other, one other plug for you, which is that anyone who's listening to this show, if you haven't ever checked out Jamie's YouTube channel, uh, it's really excellent. And if you appreciate hearing Jamie's insights on games, he is doing that constantly by sharing his favorite design mechanisms in games that he's played. And it's just a, a great series to get a little bit more into the head of one of the best designers out there. So, yeah. Thanks, Brendan. I appreciate that. And I love that. I love that. Like my, my YouTube channel is like little five minute snippets. It's like the high, the, the short version. And I love that you guys have a long form deep dive discussion in these games. I love that both can exist in the YouTube format and the podcast format. So thanks for doing that. Thanks for creating this. So Jake, that was a pretty awesome uh, discussion with Jamie Stegmeyer. And I'm always so thankful that he's willing to join the show and support the show. And it's also so cool that we got to have him on to discuss one of his favorite games and sort of get a little bit of insight into why it's a game he enjoys so much. Totally. It's really interesting how having a third person on here uh, changes the dynamic and the flow of the conversation kind of perhaps gets us away from our just normal stick and, and kind of gets into some... I, I felt like we were talking in like broader terms perhaps mm. about the game than than what we do in the past. And I thought that was pretty cool. I really thought this was going to be a, a drawn out metaphor about the multiple victory conditions mirroring having three hosts on the show and how uh, it completely changes the tension of the discussion. But it turns out that wasn't the case. Probably yeah, You give me that... too much credit, sir. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I agree. I, I'd be curious to hear what people think. I think typically we do speak a little bit more in depth about different mechanics and how they shape the decision space sort of more procedurally. And this was a little bit more of a freewheeling conversation. If you like this sort of format of the show, let us know. If you uh, like the, our other format, let us know. And if you like both, uh, well, that's playing a card for free in age number three. Absolutely. So thank you as always for listening to this week's episode of Decision Space. You can find our show on Twitter at Decision Spa. That's Decision S-P-A. You can also find us both on Twitter. Brendan's at Burnside B-H. And I'm at Jake Freed. That's F-R-Y-D. And we have a Discord that's amazing. You can... Oh, also we have a new website. We just have so much stuff that people can like go do and look at. It's awesome. We have to get the papyrus out to remind ourselves of everything that's happening. Yes, in the time between our last episode and this, uh, Decision Space website has gone live. There's lots of content on there, like all of our previous episode listings, descriptions. There's also uh, a few pages about the different lenses that we've tried to develop for the show and looking at Decision Spaces, a way to contact us via, via email and an email form if you don't even want to copy the email and paste it into your, your email uh, provider of choice. That's a weird way to say that. Uh, but check out our website, decisionspacepodcast.com and let us know what you think. You can also always interact with us on BoardGameGeek, uh, where we post weekly blogs highlighting the show and also form posts tied to the game we're discussing, where we hope to tease a little bit more about the decision space of that game with all of you. And Jake, do you have any final closing thoughts before oh. we... 
Well, okay. Oh my goodness. If you're still listening to this show right now, that means you are a true fan. So I just want to say thank you so much. What a journey we've been on with this show. Um, and if you're brand new and you're listening, then hey, you should probably, you might maybe you like what you heard and go back and check out some of our old episodes. Definitely. And I think as we approach episode 50, you and I are, are thinking all the time about sort of the trajectory of the show so far, all of the people who have become fans and are telling other people about it. Uh, and I just want to say thank you to all of you who have ever listened to Decision Space. That's all of you. But an even bigger thank you to those of you who have told at least one person about it. That's really the way that right now the show's growing the most. And we're so thankful for you helping spread the word of our Nice little show in which we explore the decisions in games. Yeah, we want November to be the biggest month ever, and you could be a part of it. But until next time, thanks for listening, and enjoy the rest of your game. And now listen to Hembry's hit song, Reach Out, for our outro. Thank you to them as always. Bye. So now we'll just end. We could just do like a little, maybe like a, hey, how cool was that? Yeah. You know, like the end of Pineapple Express where they like talk about the movie in the diner at the end. Have you seen that totally. movie? I haven't, but I'm with you. <laughs> okay, awesome. This is, so essentially this is the Patreon content after the fact, except we don't have a Patreon. Right. We're reflecting on the episode. And so we're just giving episode. it people for free. For free. Which is kind of our business model at this point. Uh, yeah, absolutely. The best free content uh, podcast in board games. But I think that this conversation, well. All right. Ba-da-ba-da-ba.